Welcome to In Conversation, a podcast from the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs. Each month, your host and the panel of senior practitioners take you through the stories and developments of the month in the practice of corporate public affairs across the globe. Now, to take you through the latest developments, here is your host, Wayne Burns. Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to uh, the second webinar of In Conversation. Today, we have with us two very experienced practitioners who are going to be talking to us about a range of issues and a range of topics that impact on corporate public affairs and the practice of corporate public affairs uh, in Australia and also Globally, we have Bronwyn Perry, who's External Affairs Manager in Corporate Public Affairs from Medibank. And we have Key Lai, who's the Engagement Manager for Regional Programs uh, from Sydney Water. Both of these practitioners are very experienced. They've worked in uh, a number of organisations and they've got, I think, a very global view of uh, corporate public affairs. Bronwyn's on her couch at home in Melbourne and thumbs up. Uh, for all your colleagues and your friends and family in Melbourne who've done a fantastic job over the last uh, 10 or 12 weeks during the pandemic and uh, the, the nation is grateful for you. And also Key's actually in his office um, at Sydney Water. And, and Key, you, I think you're going back into slowly into an office, a staggered environment over the next uh, couple of weeks, yes? Yes, that's correct. I'm actually craving for human interaction. So I'm just grateful that I can come back to, to the office again. Well, as long as we haven't found that you've murdered your partner or something or, or your partner's locked in a cupboard, that's probably um, a very good thing. Um, Just in time. So it, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> it, it could have been another couple of days. Um, I'm actually, this is my couch in the back and here's my trusty schnauzer uh, bent over. That's just a, an image um, we're lucky enough to be up the north coast of uh, Sydney this week working. Um, so I'm joining you from Bluey's Beach up on the uh, mid-coast of New South Wales. What we thought we'd uh, talk about today, if we can get to five issues, we will, but the four big issues we wanted to, to talk about is big tech and should big tech, tech be split up? And we, we talk about information and uh, news aggregation and social sites such as uh, Google, uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter uh, as well. I think this is an interesting one. So obviously the issue has been bubbling for a while. It just it's didn't just appear just before the, the election. I think both sides of the party, you know, have been trying to make some amendments to, to, to the act. I actually think that, you know, this one is an interesting one because, you know, I'm sure you've been hearing that as well. It's, it's kind of, you know, getting really political instead of just really making you know, making the, the legislation good for the people. I, I, you know, if correct me if I'm wrong, I think, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with Section 230, which we were talking about now um, in, in the Act, it's about um, big tech such as um, Facebook and Twitter. They're not liable for their third party or their users' comments and contents on their platform. But interestingly, I think they also allow um, to make up their own rules um, if those con content is against their principles. I think, you know, when the rules were made, um, it was obviously 1990, and it gave it a really broad interpretation of how, you know, they, they can kind of interpret the, the, the section. I think that for me, my perspective is that you know, if the change to the rule is for the common good, go ahead. But I just think that it will be there will be technical difficulties for, for them to do that. Just imagine Facebook is operating around the world, you know, not, you know, 
not only they are subject to different um, jurisdictions and different laws in different countries, but it's also kind of the, from that technical perspective, how can you actually moderate the content, um, you know, based on thousands, hundreds of comments within a period of time. And I, I just, I just you know, I think it's getting too political about, you know, it's obviously to do with the, the elections. And, you know, some of you may know that it's um, stemmed from, you know, why Facebook or Twitter remove um, the, uh, the New York um, financials piece about Joe Biden's son before the election. So things like that all are kind of getting into to play as well. Um, you know, my view is, yeah, it's good if we're changing that for the good, but it will be difficult. To both of you, if traditional, what we call sort of uh, old media, whether it be radio or television or print or even sort of web news, are able to moderate the comment and decide what's defamatory, what's not, what's incendiary and what's not, why shouldn't they be able to do that either, Bronwyn? I think it's an interesting question, Wayne, because there's a difference, I think, because, uh, for example, an online a version of a newspaper really started as an online version of a newspaper. So no different to publishing a letter to the editor. They had to make sure that what they were publishing wasn't going to get them in trouble as they are responsible for mm -hmm. it once it appeared in their pages. The same is it's true of an online comment to an article. I think the difference with, you know, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, is that it is uh, merely just a tech platform for people yeah. to publish their own views. So I am a bit conflicted because I think it's a good thing, for example, that something like the Christchurch terrorist attack, that, that content should have been taken down and, and have stayed down. Um, but at the same time, it's not really, I don't really think that a Facebook or a Twitter is qualified to moderate free speech. And I don't think any government particularly the US government, it should be in charge of deciding what that free speech would look like, because particularly in the US, that would just take the form of whatever um, political power was happening at the time. So it is interesting. There is a big difference to me in how an online news platform would operate versus a Facebook or a Twitter. Hey, don't you think it's a, good, a very good point from when made, but in Australia, the figures are up to more than 60% of uh, people are getting their primary news from an online uh, social media platform, whether it be YouTube or whether it be uh, Twitter. Facebook is, is the most common one, but Instagram as well. So the world has changed. Does regulation need to change? And just on top of that, for both of you, is splitting up these entities really going to achieve more moderation of content? I think that uh, kind of the difference is that this tech form or this platform, it's not the publisher themselves. They're just merely providing a platform, a, a channel for, for people to provide their views. You know, maybe use analogy or use a simple example. This is how I interpret. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's like we are going all on a bus and you hear someone providing some discriminatory or violence um, uh, comments and we're trying to legislate people who provide that, who drive the bus, not taking actions on them rather than the, the, the people who are actually saying them themselves. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit, you know, the focus is not there. It's like I'm providing with a lobby and everyone can say whatever you want, but you're still subject to the consequence of your behavior or your comments. But for me, I'm providing the platform for that. I don't know if I should be reliable for that because people who are actually saying that or part of the conversation should know that there will be consequences and we're not taking away from that at all. Roman, what, uh, you know, personal responsibility, are these just a platform and is splitting them up really going to achieve moderation of uh, content? I, re I read a really interesting piece, I think it was on the conversation this week, basically saying there's two uh, tech 
in sort of social media tech hubs in the world, one's China and one's the US. If you break up companies like Alphabet, Facebook, Twitter, do you achieve anything other than a political aim? Because all it does mm. is weaken that, the stance of those companies against companies in China, which are going from strength to strength, growing their usage. Obviously, China has banned um, those companies, the American companies from operating in their country. Donald Trump tried to ban TikTok in his country. But it's, uh, I mean, I noticed TikTok in Australia is on a massive hiring spree at the moment. Like it's, there's a big difference between when you really boil it down, if there's only kind of be two hubs for these types of companies, do we want to weaken the one that ostensibly would represent, I guess, Australian values loosely? I'm not saying that they're perfect, perfect companies, but there is... Uh, it's a real it's it's a real conundrum because if you break them up, do they just become weaker? There was another mm. interesting view I read that said antitrust action in the US splitting companies up doesn't tend to result in the outcome you want, but enforcing an action on those companies while they remain as is leads to better outcomes. So the example that I read was requiring IBM to split off hardware and software results in the creation of Microsoft requiring Microsoft to enable other companies, developers to use their software enables us to have Chrome and Safari instead of just using good old Internet Explorer. So there are examples out there where greater oversight, and that's obviously a problem in the US anyway, can lead to greater creativity. But at the same time, are the companies too big? Maybe. Yeah, it's very interesting. And uh, the example of uh, TikTok, for example, oddly enough, in their big hiring spree, uh, Bronwyn, they've they've uh, hired a corporate public affairs manager. So they've, they've seen the light. A very good friend of mine's just joined them as their head of policy. So <laughs> she's ex-politics. So Fantastic. she knows what's going on. Uh, and we're waiting for her, her 12 second video, dancing video. I'm sure she'll do it extremely well. And just moving on to our next one, which was the pandemic, COVID-19, and the focus on the corporations. I mean, a big focus on the values of corporations as uh, they've traded through and as they've interacted with their customers, whether they be B2B or you know, B2G or B2C. So their values have been really under the microscope. And you work for two organizations, uh, Key with Sydney Water and Bronwyn with, with Medibank. You, you've actually been part of that focus as well. Are these organizations going to live up to the values? And importantly, what about their uh, sustainability? Is now the time, because of the extraordinary times, to suspend prioritizing environmental impact? Sustainability also involves engagement with stakeholders, good governance, um, how you treat your employees, and also your role in the community, your overall corporate responsibility. Do you think our views about, and I mean, it's only, it's a short time since the beginning of this year, and you haven't got a crystal ball, but do, do you perceive a shift in community expectations of a company's corporate responsibility, sustainability? Probably we might start with with you. you. You work for a listed entity, so you you have also um, you know groups of ethical and stakeholders and super funds that got this in focus at the moment. Yeah, I think I think that change has been happening for some time. I don't think it's new because of COVID. I think everyone would say that this sort of shift has been happening for a while. I think the focus is changing in that people are reassessing uh, in an Australian experience. Australian experience, we're reassessing how we live our lives. So Melbourne, Melbourneites, for example, Melbourneians, we've been at home for most of the year, um, particularly the last four months, four or five months, we really weren't allowed to leave the home for very many reasons at all. So you sort of do start to focus on what's important to me, what's important to my family and my friends and my network, what decisions am I making about my life? Because you can't get distracted by life clutter because there is no life clutter because you can't do it. <laughs> um, so I think there's people have had, I've noticed definitely anecdotally, a greater focus on 
their personal choices. And that's that's everything from the way they're living in their home to the companies that they purchase from, how they're thinking about Christmas. I'm noticing that's changing. Um, people are trying to be more socially responsible in who they purchase from uh, for Christmas, for example. So I think it started as kind of a maybe, you know, people thinking about the plastics that they use, for example, and it's got a lot bigger. I do think companies still um, have a very strong role with ESG, that there shouldn't be any kind of um, abrogating of that responsibility. I think, for example, plastic use in hospitals is probably way up at the moment, but I'm not annoyed about that because I think you chuck all that stuff out and incinerate it at the end, don't be reusing things. But I think that in some ways puts the onus on the rest of us to ensure we're acting responsibly, for example, with plastic use to try and offset if that makes sense. So I don't, yeah, I don't think there's, there should be any kind of, oh, this is too hard at the moment or it's not the environment at the moment. I think it's become more important than ever. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, from Sydney Water's perspective, we actually just set up a CSR uh, department to look at how we can kind of align our CSR goals with our corporate directions and goals. I think, from from a personal perspective, I you know we're trying to draw the connections between the pandemic right now and if there's any change to to corporate CSI and, and ESG. To be honest, I don't I don't see this um, very strong drive or, or, or difference because my view is that customers or um, communities are always expecting uh, corporates to be a good citizen. And as a corporate, as a company, you always want to reflect your customers' view. You always want to make sure that what you do is your it's your what your customer needs are. So corporate social responsibility and, and ESG is important, but I think it's too early to say that if there's any change or, or shift because of, of the pandemic. I think people are starting, you know, I agree with Bronwyn, people are starting to think that if my personal actions or what I believe would change, will contribute to, you know, to a, a global change instead of the pandemic now or COVID-19, if I'm doing anything differently, would that the result be, be different. I think if we're trying to really draw a straight line between COVID-19 coronavirus and public social responsibility, the, the connection is here, here is that we shouldn't forget that, you know, the origin of that is we're talking about the consumption of live animals. I think that it's something that is quite relevant to what we're talking about. I think that's what we need to really focus. It's to, this is a public health problem. And what it's reminding us is that our behavior, that the personal behavior is it's also very important as well. I think what was interesting is that this year, people became very inward focused on their own life and their own health and their own circumstances. But that doesn't mean that people aren't paying attention to what, for example, corporate Australia are doing in this space. So yeah. I think it's been really, like, you know, just to go into work mode for a minute, we made a $185 million package um, around COVID-19 and I think stuff that's very important that we're proactively as Corporate Australia speaking about what are we doing for customers, what are we doing for the community at a time when people maybe are not looking for that but I think are still interested to hear it. You are listening to In Conversation, a podcast from the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs, a membership-based organisation comprising companies, industry associations and government departments across Asia-Pacific. The Centre works with its members and other entities to apply best practice to extend their social licence to operate. The Centre develops and delivers executive education globally, conducts research and provides specialist consulting services. Now, back to your host of this episode, 
of In Conversation. That's a very good point. And I'll quickly make a point before we move on to our next topic is that as well as uh, filtering and understanding uh, customer and community expectations, like that's what public affairs does, it's the window in. There's also a window out. It's an opportunity for companies to take a leadership position saying, we know your expectations, um, but we're going to go beyond or we're going to go this way or that way because we think it's the right thing to do as well. Taking those expectations um, into account when those decisions are made. Also, just we're still sort of in pandemic zone, but it's, it's more of a communication question. During the bushfires, we all became bushfire experts and, and firefront experts. And now we're all armchair epidemiologists because we need to. We need to understand some of the science. How has the communications been around those science, around the science of COVID, do you think? I've got two thoughts that I wanted to share on this, Wayne. One is that uh, I think Australia and all this, not just the federal government, state governments, made a really smart call early on to involve chief medical officers uh, at every press conference. I think referring back and in, to some extent, Victoria, that started to drive us a bit mad towards the end of this second lockdown that they just kept saying, we're relying on the latest scientific information. It's like, yes, but we're all frustrated. But I think having the Prime Minister standing next to Brendan Murphy, it does make a difference to people's understanding of what they're being told. They understand the seriousness of it. This is, you know, someone who is not, um, it's not, a. I mean, some people have tried to politicise the pandemic as the year wore on, but it's not been um, a political exercise. I think most of the comms haven't been. Uh, I think we were probably all slow on the uptake on things like, as you said, Wayne, social distancing, what that really meant um, and even mask wearing. I don't know how many times people have to be told the mask must cover the nose and the mouth, but you still see a lot of people walking around with it sort of here or here. And mainly uh, blokes, mainly yeah, men. Mainly yes. blokes, yes, Wayne, <laughs> true. <laughs> um, but the other thing that I think um, is, is interesting is that people have really used their own networks to communicate the information as well. So that's been an important part of again, going back to social media, I saw a lot of panic and incorrect information on different social media groups and really very few people out there who were willing to put themselves out there to correct the record. Mm -hmm. So I think that really speaks volumes to um, everyone becomes an armchair expert, as you said, but there's not as much, um, I guess, legitimate science out there that people are relying on. Everyone's sort of referring to a source of a source of a source. And it's not necessarily the best way to get information, but maybe that's what crisis communications looks like in a digital world. I, I think I'll refer this back to, you know, when we talk to, when we do our customer survey, when we do our customer engagement activities, we'll always hear that what our customers want is a single source of truth. That's very important. I think, you know, it's important that we have the chief, um, you know, health um, kind of officer to, to, to do that update and where people can have that single source of truth every day. But the other thing, I think the difficulty for us uh, as communication specialists is, as well is that during the pandemic, it's a lot of times has become not just a health problem and whatever advice we need to give the public, we need to take into account the economic impact and other impact as well. And that hinders, kind of prevents us to, it's not purely just communications about, you know, how to, what to do and how, what to, how to wear a mask and things like that. And things like whether we should wear a mask on public transport or whether it is mandated or not, it's taken into account a lot of other factors into making that decision. 
if as a comms person, I only have to think of the health impact of that, it will be a lot easier if I just make a decision or draft my material based on that reason. But it's because there's a lot of factors playing a part as well. It makes the process very difficult. So I think the confusion comes kind of from that as well. And my, my, me, myself, I'm speaking another language as well, and I fully understand that people are trying to, especially from that multicultural community, and, and people are trying to get um, information from different kind of channels. And I, I can see, even now, what we are saying is sometimes different from the WHO. It's different from what, you know the, the messages from America, from um, from China, or from Italy. So I think that is the, the challenge as well because because of social media online, because of the availability of them, and we are trying to get hear different things from different different channels, and that that makes it quite quite different. Uh, thank you. It's a, it's a very good point. Um, there's lots of mixed messaging and that's because there's a lot of chaos yeah. and it's just the reality of it all until acceptance. And when we went through the acceptance stage that there was a pandemic, despite some people saying it was sort of, you know, fake or a fraud or something, there's a rhythm to the communications, which is important as well. And uh, as both of you said, you need a font of knowledge. You need the truth. Yeah. And uh, definitely those daily briefings for the federal level and the state level became the font of uh, uh, truth is very, very interesting. Just finally, I've got a couple of minutes to go. Working from home, there's lots of, I, I call it future porn out there. It's very interesting to read, you know, here's the world's going to look like and everything's changed forever. And no doubt things will. We're not sure how it's going to settle out there. But for many years, lots of companies and organizations encourage flexibility. They encourage people from work from home, but not everyone did. And now, according to research here in the US, 30% of people don't want to go back to work at all. They want to work from home. 70% want to to, wants to go back to work, but they all want the flexibility from work from home. Just in terms of corporate public affairs, can we continue as a management function to work entirely from home? What would be your view on what would work best? In the office, work at home, a little bit of both? I think, Wayne, a mixed model for our function is the most viable, purely because we are relationship builders and communicators by trade. And often, we're very good at that digitally on the phone or over Zoom, for example, but I think also can't undervalue the uh, quality of a face-to-face -face interaction, particularly when it's someone that you are, don't have a pre-existing relationship with or it's a new relationship, so you're still building that level of trust that's really important in the function that we serve. Medibank has always had, I feel very fortunate, we've always had a very strong, flexible working policy. We've been highlighted in the national media a number of times over the last five years for some of those policies and being seen as quite progressive. But I've even this shift has been fascinating. We always had the option to work from home or to work from elsewhere, but having to work from home is a different kettle of fish. And I think there was, a few, there was probably people that still didn't think they would like it or didn't think it would suit them. And to some extent, it still doesn't. There are plenty of people trying to work from home with um, 15 other things happening in their home. Another person trying to work, whether it's a housemate or a partner. Pe people in Melbourne have had kids at home for sort of six months of this year. So I think um, for me, it would be a mixed model. There's a lot to be said for the value you can get in the quiet of your own space and being able to get things done. But there's also a lot of value in uh, corridor conversations, catching up with people in the kitchen, but also some meetings that they just work better when you are face to face, particularly at the higher level, you, you know, you're not sort of getting um, hours and hours of time with a chief executive every day. But sometimes a five minute conversation with them is all you need that can just completely refresh or reset a priority. So I think for me, it would be a mixed model. Key, what, what about your view? 
yeah, I think, you know, self-confession, I'm not a big fan of working from home just for myself. Um, yeah. I just said that as well. But it doesn't mean that my team members cannot perform if they work from home. I'm a big supporter of that. I think flexible working arrangement and working from home will work and continue to work if um, it's tailored to the individual. I think, I'm not sure how many of you um, in the audience, you know, your company has a flexible working arrangement um, in your company. When the experience that when you apply for them, you know, it's good on paper when you actually apply for them before the pandemic, it actually has a lot of caveats or criteria that you actually have to meet to be able to work, to, to be able to work from home. So in Sydney Water, we actually had, um, we run um, a, we have run a, a survey with um, all our employees. What does that really mean to you? So working from home, maybe it means to someone, you know, if they have to have to pick up their kids and they've just wanted to start a little bit early or a little bit late in the morning and finish early and finish late or have uh, two hours um, you know, during the day and make it up in the afternoon or in the morning. So I don't think there's a one size fit all um, yeah. approach yeah. and it really has to be meaningful to that single individual, what it means to you. And the other thing I can share with you is that out of that survey, uh, more than 75% of our employees said that they actually want a combination um, of, you know, being the future model. So uh, being able to go to work two to three days a week is, is ideal. Uh, very little or few people actually said that they want to work completely uh, from home. Um, I think, you know, it, it is timely that it is probably a, a trigger for us to think about what flexible working really means to our employees. It's one way that we can support them. And, you know, my verdict is, is easy. Whatever is working for the last seven months, shift work in the, in the future as well. If our business is running, surely we can run it, you know, in, in this way. But, you know, it's important that the support that we have to give our people is also that human interaction is very important. I really missed when I can't, couldn't work from home that those kitchen conversations, those, you know, corridor and copy machine conversations, I think that's really helped me to, you know, for my mental health and help me to kind of build a relationship with, with my team as well. And also, it's a challenge to how do you make teams work as well as the individual? How do you make teams work better if not everyone's either going to be present either face-to-face and face-to-face can be via a video platform as mm. well or a dial-in, you know, exactly face-to-face. And how do you create uh, an environment so a team still functions as a team and not a series of working groups who are doing their own stuff and then bringing their work back to the centre? So that's that's going to be a big challenge. Look, thank you. We're out of time, unfortunately. It'd be fantastic to speak uh, to ours with you. Uh, Bronwyn Perry from uh, Medibank and Key Live from uh, Sydney Water. Thank you very much for thank being you. in conversation with the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs. Thank you both. And uh, we hope you will join us next time. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for this episode of In Conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe for more at the Centre's Very Public Affairs podcast show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For more information about best practice public affairs, visit the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs at www.accpa.com.au.